Born in Munich, Germany in 1942, Michael Haneke nonetheless travels on an Austrian passport. Unusual as that may sound, Haneke's films challenge audiences with difficult questions while never providing any clear, let alone reassuring answers. Instead, he presents the antithesis to mainstream entertainment, keeping the audience at a distance by creating characters that are hard to empathise with and then placing those characters at the centre of unpleasant events. After which, he tops it all off with finales so open-ended, they refuse narrative closure to the point that barely anything is resolved. In a Michael Haneke film, the story does not end as much as the director decides he has given us enough. Haneke does this because he understands that films that explain everything and provide answers demotivate us from thinking for ourselves. Instead, we become passive recipients of all manner of, well, we either embrace it as entertainment or recognise it as propaganda. Is it better to be feared or respected? And I say, is it too much to ask for both? With that in mind, I humbly present the crown jewel of Stark Industries Freedom Line. It's the first missile system to incorporate our proprietary repulsor technology. They say the best weapon is one you never have to fire. I respectfully disagree. I prefer the weapon you only have to fire once. That's how Dad did it. That's how America does it. And it's worked out pretty well so far. One of the ways Hanukkah prompts us to think is by playing with genre convention. Take his eighth feature film, Hidden. When it premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in 2005, the distributors hyped it as a psychological thriller. But, having seen it, could anyone honestly define it as such? Another way Hanukkah challenges us is by toying with film grammar. Take Hidden's celebrated and much analysed near three-minute opening shot. There have been several celebrated and much analysed opening shots in the history of cinema. Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights, Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation, or the granddaddy of them all, Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. Uh, you folks are American citizens? I am, yes. Where were you born, miss? Mrs. What? Philadelphia. The name is Vargas. Hey, Jim! You see who's here? Sure, Mr. Vargas. Out on the trail of another dope ring? Out on the trail of a chocolate soda for my wife. Your wife? Really a bride, officer. Hey, can I get through? A lot of talk up here about how you crack that grandy business. Yeah, we hear you caught the big boss. Only one of them. The grandies are a big family. Good night. But instead of bravura camera moves and intricate sound design, Hanukkah begins his film in a way that is so banal, it feels merely functional. We open at a daytime view of a quiet urban T-junction, at the top of which sits a house. The occasional pedestrians pass by. While they do, and over the next two minutes, the credits appear on screen. The credits end, a woman emerges from the house, and exits left. The image holds on the same angle, and almost half a minute elapses before a cyclist glides around the corner. Hardly what you could call a gripper. But, by insisting on holding on the shot, Hanukkah forces us to look. And keep looking. Still, he holds on the shot. Fifteen more seconds pass, and then from off-screen, we hear voices. I know. Well? I know. Nothing. Still. Where was it? In a plastic bag on the porch. What are they referring to? An understanding of film grammar suggests these two people are commenting on what we are looking at the house. And an understanding of film grammar would also suggest that we are going to get a reverse shot of the two people looking at the house. But no. Y a? 
What's wrong? Sounds like an innocent question, but in this instance it is not. There is something wrong, and soon we will discover that what is wrong started with that seemingly banal opening image. More of which later, but for now, let us focus on what happens next. Hanukkah cuts to a closer view of the house, this time from a different angle, this time at dusk. A man emerges from the house and walks out into the street, followed tentatively by a woman. We will soon learn that they are husband and wife, Georges and Anne Laurent, played respectively by Daniel Autoy and Juliette Benoche. More than puzzled, they are worried. He must have been there, no? Come inside. George returns inside, Hanukkah returns us to the opening shot, and then it becomes clear. George and Anne have been watching video footage of their house, and while they want to know who filmed it, what Hanukkah has managed to do is surreptitiously trick us both temporarily and spatially. Firstly, in terms of time, we've been dislocated. The opening shot is footage filmed from earlier, which, strictly speaking, makes the opening shot a flashback. Quite an achievement. Secondly, in terms of space, we have also been dislocated. The opening image appeared that we were outside the house, and with the voices, that impression was momentarily reinforced. But the overlay of dialogue placed us inside the house while looking at the outside of the house. Again, quite an achievement. But there is more to it than that. While the image of the street seems innocuous, over the course of the film's near two-hour running time, the video footage raises the question, who is looking at the house? In a way, it is as if Hanukkah has taken a genre convention established by Hitchcock in Rear Window, and instead of telling it from the point of view of L.B. Jeffries and Lisa Fremont, he puts us in the apartment across the courtyard and tells a story from the point of view of Lars Thorwald. What do you want from me? Your friend, the girl, could have turned me in. Why didn't she? What is it you want? A lot of money? I don't have any money. Say something. Say something. Tell me what you want. Can you get me that ring back? No. Looking at the video for the first time, Georges thinks it might be a prank carried out by the friends of his son, Piero, played by Lester Macandonsky. But when another video arrives, this time wrapped in a crude, childlike drawing of a man spitting blood, Georges experiences a brief and cryptic vision of a child with a bleeding mouth. But instead of having Georges explain the vision, Hanukkah has Georges and Anne continue looking at the videos. By doing that, Hanukkah does three things. He prolongs the mystery while also calling into question the nature of looking and the nature of filmmaking itself. Georges hosts and edits his own TV talk show, on which his guests review the latest literary publications. So, while watching the tape, Anne wonders whether it has been sent by a disgruntled viewer, which in turn might prompt us to wonder whether the person behind the tape is in fact a disgruntled author whose book was disparaged on Georges' show. That we never learn who made the tapes means that Hanukkah is once again playing with a genre convention. Only in this instance, it would appear he is offering up a version of Hitchcock's MacGuffin. However, a more accurate comparison would be Michelangelo Antonioni's blow-up, which focuses not only on a photographer, but also the phenomenon of photography. Here is Hanukkah in 2011, on the reverse-shot Vimeo channel, being asked about the ethics of the image, 
as well as the ethics of a filmmaker. Yeah, I think the film is this manipulation by excellence. I think that uh, film is par excellence, the medium of manipulation uh, for spectators. So as a result of that, then as a filmmaker, it's your obligation to use that uh, power uh, responsibly. Uh, of course, uh, mainstream uh, cinema doesn't do that. Mainstream cinema robs the spectator of their responsibility. All they're really doing is uh, going into their wallets and taking out money. If you take cinema as an art form, then it's necessary to treat the spectator with the same respect that you treat yourself, with take him as seriously as you take yourself. Lengthy and articulate as Hanukkah's reply is, it doesn't really answer the question. But the reason why the question was asked in the first place is because Hidden is not the first time Hanukkah has used video footage in his stories. He did something similar in 1992 with Benny's video. There, the eponymous teenager, Benny, videotapes his domestic life before drifting into homicidal mania, which he records and presents to his parents. His parents, perhaps not coincidentally, shared the same first names as the parents in Hidden. Here, to explain a little bit more, and to tease out another crucial element, is Roy Grundman, Associate Professor of Film Studies at Boston University. There's also a lot in cachet that is in other Hanukkah films. Um, people have certainly pointed out that uh, there is a strong connection to a, an earlier film called Benny's Video, uh, which also has to do with tapes, with the rewinding of these tapes. Uh, it has to do with... Uh, generational strife between the parents and their son. That's one of the classic Hanukkah topics. Uh, but of course, what's, what's interesting about cachet, in addition to these aspects, is that there is the, uh, the element of um, an, uh, an ethnic other, an element of, you know, of, of people who are not uh, white European, uh, white French citizens. For a while, it appears that the person behind the videos is a man named Majid, played by Maurice Benichoux. Through identifying street signs in other videos, Georges traces Majid to a small apartment in a much less affluent part of the city. Who is Majid? When he was six years old, Majid's parents worked on Georges' family estate. Then Majid's parents inexplicably disappeared, and Georges' parents moved to adopt the boy into their family. But then the young Georges made a number of wild accusations against Majid. The most lowered of which was that Majid had coughed up blood and decapitated a rooster with a hatchet. Fearing for the son's safety, Georges' parents then had Majid taken away. But what happened to Majid's parents? On October 17, 1961, while the Franco-Algerian War was nearing its peak, Algerian immigrants took to the streets of Paris to demonstrate against France's occupation of their homeland. The police reacted in a brutal manner, massacring an estimated 200 Arabs before dumping their remains into the River Seine. For close to four decades, that shameful event was hushed up by a succession of French governments, reducing the massacre to little more than a rumour. Such trauma results in what American historian and professor of English at Emory University, Lauren Otis, calls banned emotions. In her book of the same name, Otis theorises how metaphor and suppressed memory can shape what people feel. In the case of the October Massacre, it so haunts the French national psyche, the only way many people can deal with the guilt is not only to deny the event took place, but to render invisible the Arab population. Which just might explain why we never get to identify the person literally behind the videos. However, in 2011, French-Algerian rap artist Medine recorded an entire album, Table d'écoute, 
to memorialize the victims. Alger capital, au commencement des 60s, les pieds noirs quittent le navire, les colons terratisent. 1961, période estivale, c'est la guerre d'Algérie et son festival, et son lot de discrimination, de torture, d'exaction, tout un ramassis d'ordures. Quelques degrés au nord de l'équateur, je quitte l'Algérie française, un pincement dans le cœur. Voici mon parcours, Ahmed, fils de Mohamed, gangrené du corps par la misère du Maghreb, par les meurtres, les soirs de couvre-feu, par la peur du soldat français qui ouvre le feu. Weeks after Hidden was released in France, Riots broke out in several cities where the nation's socio-economic and ethnic differences are most acute. While George, Anne and Piero epitomise the French nuclear family, Majid, who does not appear to be married, and his son, played by Walid Afkar, come from a very different spectrum. Yet, side by side, or far apart, the two families represent the connection and disconnection in modern France. Yet, however affluent, educated and comfortable George may seem, Hanukkah chips away to security until it ruptures in the most catastrophic manner. Majid takes his own life, slitting his throat in front of Georges. Yet, Georges neither calls for medical assistance, nor does he report the event to the police. Instead, he goes to the cinema, where he retreats into the dark to be entertained. As he comes out of the multiplex, Hanukkah gives us a wide shot so we can see the posters for what was on show. Bad education, my mother, marriages, the chorus, two brothers, and the great seduction. Each in their own way, and especially as a collection, the titles offer headings for a discussion on Georges. His childhood home, his connection with Majid, his relationships with his wife and son, how his TV show frames public discourse, and above all, how Georges relates to and disengages from the tragedy he just witnessed. Here is Edward Narcessian, co-director of the Philoctety Center in New York. It's a lot about the construction of reality and how uh, reality is so much a question of one's own perception, not only visual perception, but psychological perception and evaluation of the situation. And whether that perception is affected by uh, what is implied in here, which is, the, uh, which is guilt about some crime that was uh, felt to have been committed as a child or whether the perception is uh, determined by, by just the, the visual nature of the incongruities. Michael Haneke is a director of often breathtaking brilliance. Too austere for mainstream audiences, yet revered by most critics, his peers repeatedly acknowledge his importance. Amongst many other honours, Haneke has received two Palme d'Ors at Cannes, two Oscars for Best Foreign Language Picture, a BAFTA, a César, a Donatello, a Goya, and six European Film Academy Awards. But while Haneke is admired for his refusal to provide clear answers, that does not mean his films offer consistent theses. Haneke's preferred mode is realism, a realism he hopes will prompt us to think for ourselves. Yet in Hidden, he weakens his intention by creating scenarios that undermine his drama's credibility. In an otherwise brilliant film, Hanukkah deems it plausible that Anne needs Georges to explain to her the massacre of October the 17th, 1961. This despite Anne being an editor at a prominent and progressive publishing house. Could she really be so uninformed? It seems to me that in this instance, Hanukkah doubted our intelligence and ability to think for ourselves. To give an indication as to just how widely known the events are, 
on October the 18th, 1994, Belfast punk band Stiff Little Fingers released their sixth studio album, Get Alive. The final track on the record is When the Stars Fall from the Sky, which, just like Medine's album, memorialises the victims of that fateful day. (laughs) 